Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, college campuses, political correctness, and Woodrow Wilson. So, Richard, we return again today to the topic of activism on college campuses, the latest locus of which has been Princeton where there is an effort to get Woodrow Wilson's name removed from the university's school of public policy. And this effort owes largely to Wilson's views on race, including the fact that they made the decision to resegregate the civil service during his presidency. It also, of course, bears noting that Wilson's ties to Princeton were uh, personal. He was president of the university before he was governor of New Jersey. So, Richard, some conservatives look at this and take a sort of dark delight in the fact that they're not the ones in the crosshair this time. Woodrow Wilson, this iconic progressive figure. Mm-hmm. Are you that sanguine about it? No, I'm not sanguine about it. Look, I think he was one of the worst presidents the United States ever had, notwithstanding the fact that a consensus of historians, virtually all of whom are probably liberal, uh, ranks him at number seven on the poll list. Uh, The modern presidents who do very well are all in the progressive tradition. People like Calvin Coolidge with solid records of accomplishment are mired in the bottom half. Uh, Barack Obama, who may certainly the worst president in my lifetime, slots in in the set of polls right now at 15 out of 44, which means well above above average. And I think he's a worse president than Warren G. Harding. But, you know, that gives you some sense of what the landscape is. But but if you start having fair game with respect to this, anybody you want could become fair game. To give you but a parallel, some years ago there was a question as to whether or not the University of Chicago could name an institute after Milton Friedman. And there was just a huge upcry about all of this. And eventually it persevered and it's now the Becker Friedman Institute where Gary Becker had very, very many similar views. And, you know, my attitude was most of the people who objected to him were wrong in terms of what he said and how they understood it. And it was generally the case with respect to Milton, to quote a line from Eddie Lazare, it's amazing how many people could beat him in argument when he wasn't in the room. Uh, But, you know, if that's the way it goes and you could take after Milton and you could take after any conservative down the road afterwards on the grounds that anyone who's a defender of free markets is a defender of Jim Crow, an equation that has been made more times than I care to mention. So I think it's actually an extremely dangerous thing. I think what you do in effect is you take the naming stuff off of the table and you start having having debates on the merits and the people who want to criticize Wilson, myself included, should be free to do so and his progressive friends can defend him. I don't think there's anybody who's going to defend him on grounds of race. The defense there is really quite different. It's Unfortunately, Wilson was the median voter at that particular point in time and there was very little sentiment in favor of racial integration. Indeed, I think everybody kind of knew that the political winds in the 1910-1920 period were actually blowing in the wrong direction on this particular issue. The NAACP, which founded in 1910, certainly knew it. It mounted a fierce public relations campaign to stop it, but it didn't even sue, as I recall, to try to block it because it knew it was perfectly constitutional under the laws that existed. So I think what we really want to do is not try to whitewash history and pretend it's better than it was, but by the same token, when people commit sins which in fact are indefensible in themselves, we can't let it go. Um, to the naming opportunities because uh, George Washington, James Madison, in addition to Woodrow Wilson, Thomas Jefferson, they're all down the memory hole if the anti-slavery kick is enough to get people dislodged from the American tradition of great public servants. Give me a sense from 
apart from the racial issue, why somebody who is a classical liberal like yourself regards Wilson's legacy with so much dread? Well, I mean, it's remarkably similar to the current president. He was hopelessly progressive on domestic issues where it really did not work. And he was incredibly inept on foreign policy, uh, mainly because he was much too slow to intervene in when there was genuine peril in the case of Germany. On the domestic front, uh, the great issue, or one of the great issues of the 1912 campaign was whether or not to overrule a decision called Lowe v. Lawler, which in 1908 had decided that labor unions, when they ran secondary boycotts, were subject to the antitrust laws under the Sherman Act. This was, I might add, a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court. And it essentially says the same rules for collective organizations apply to laborers to management. And at the time, there was a very strong labor movement which hated the possibility of any parallel. And the campaign that was made by Wilson and to some extent by Teddy Roosevelt was to pass a statute, later Section 6 of the Clayton Act, which essentially said that labor is not an article of commerce or of trade and so therefore is not subject to the antitrust laws. Samuel Gumpers referred to this as the Magna Carta of the labor movement and I regard it as an unmitigated mistake. Um, the basic point here is that cartels are dangerous, combinations are dangerous, whether they're done by labor or whether they're done by management. The antitrust law has made the correct judgment when it says that collective refusals to deal in search of economic advantage are per se offenses under the antitrust law because people have no other place to go against that kind of monopoly power. Uh, the unified front is like a common carrier. Common carriers have duties of service and the union, in effect, should never be able to do all of those things. Uh, I might add that the 1914 Act was a kind of a rerun of the worst of the English statutes on this, the Trade Disputes Act of 1906, which led to the ultimate wreckage of the English economy. One of its provisions was that any act done by a group would not be illegal unless it was illegal if done by a single individual, which meant that the conspiracy theories were gone as sources of potential liability. That one one change organizes, shifts the whole course of organized labor um, in a direction that leads to the National Labor Relations Act, the Fair, Sta Fair Labor Standards Act, and so forth. And it turns out that as a serious matter, if you're interested in public welfare, uh, the competitive operation of labor markets is every bit as important as the competitive market in goods, the competitive markets in capital, the competitive markets in real estate or anything else. Uh, the world is often unkind and there are some markets like transportation and communications which can't be competitive. But the worst thing that you could ever do is to switch a market which is competitive and turn it into one that is monopolistic. And that's one piece of work that our friend Wilson did. To give another piece that I talked about in this article um, that I wrote on Hoover, um, the Red Scare. Um, Wilson was the man who unleashed J. Edgar Hoover in the Palmer Raids. And there was a mass expulsion of left-wing radicals from the United States because of their general political views. Hundreds of people were dislodged. All sorts of raids were taking place. And it was Wilson who did all these prosecutions. And, you know, again, what's happened is when you get a guy who's a little bit messianic, a little bit self-righteous, it's real easy to say any time that there's a dissent out there, the thing that you do is you throw them in jail, which is what they did with Eugene V. Debs when he gave a presidential campaign speech in Canton, Ohio, I think it was, and it was upheld by the Supreme Court. The irony is it's Harry Doherty, uh, the no-good Supreme um, Attorney General under Harding, who recommends 
to Harding that he'd be pardoned um, because he languished in jail for three years. I mean, so, I mean, you look at this and you see that Wilson turns out to be highly interventionist. He does similar stuff with the Federal Trade Commission, which became a source of all sorts of anti-competitive initiatives through the administrative state. He was the guy who was behind the Wet Pomeranian Act of 1918, which sanctifies the organization of export cartels for the benefit of American producers and so forth. So on the domestic front, He's a shambles. Should I also, I suppose, Troy, talk a little bit about the foreign stuff or what? Sure. Why don't you discuss the foreign yeah, stuff? I, to summarize the d- domestic side, w- would it be fair to say the bumper sticker version of this, Richard? Pro- progressive but not liberal in the classical sense of that word really whatsoever. Yeah, he, basically every time you scratch a progressive reform from from Wilson or from Roosevelt, you end up with either a cartel or a restraint on entry. 100%. Okay. Uh, and this is absolutely disastrous. And on the other hand, when they're going after businesses, they probably are a bit too aggressive in finding monopoly risk where none are there. So they manage when they separate labor from business, they manage to get it wrong on both sides. More disastrous with respect to the labor side uh, than with respect uh, to the other side. On foreign affairs, I mean, uh, the, I read this book. I can't remember its name, but it was on the one about the sinking of the Lusitania in May of 1915. And the book ends with a quotation from from Winston Churchill saying, if Wilson had decided to intervene at that time when there was a clear act of aggression by the German submarines against the United States, think of the millions of lives that would have been saved if the war could have been brought to a halt a year earlier. And what this sort of reminds you of is that the man who runs for president saying he kept us out of war, of course, could not keep that promise. Uh, By April of 1917, we were involved in this war for a variety of reasons. We come in later. We get in under disadvantageous circumstances. And then Wilson, as best everybody can say, was by this time sufficiently ill and sufficiently self-righteous that he contributed nothing of positive value to the Versailles Peace Treaty. And it's clear that his rigidity back home meant that he couldn't work out a viable compromise for getting the United States into the League of Nations. Um, It's, again, a very disappointing kind of rhetoric and record. One of the things that's so odd is it's clear by somewhere in the middle of 1919, where he has well over a year to serve, he's become sufficiently fragile that his second wife, Edith, takes over the operation of this business. And so you have this kind of substitute White House going on. Uh, Why this man rates seventh? Well, the answer is he believed in four freedoms. He wanted to make the world safe for democracy, lots of other grand platitudes, nothing on the operation side. And in fact, if you look at the modern presidents who fall on that list of greatness, well, there's Roosevelt, terrible peacetime president, not a bad wartime president. I can draw the distinction between them. Harry Truman, very strong on foreign affairs, pretty pretty dreadful on domestic affairs, is up there um, as well in, in, in this top group. And then there is Wilson. And the others are, you know, the kind of iconoclast uh, there is Teddy Roosevelt, he's sort of transitional but progressive. He comes in five, and the first four are very much from the early period of the Republic. You know, they're Lincoln, they're Washington, they're um, what's it, who are the others? There, the Jefferson is on that particular list, and there's one other um, early on. So what you do is you get yourself a pretty strong kind of early or liberal sort of bias in the way in which um, uh, this kind of operation uh, sort of works. And uh, to me, Wilson is a classic illustration of how the profession of history is so suffused with people who elect from centers who are then treated as authoritative that I shake my head in disbelief. I am not a professional historian, uh, but I am a professional lawyer. 
And when people start talking about this stuff at the grand level, I'm always looking at the granular level. And so if he says he advances labor rights, to me that's a platitude, not an argument. And if you actually look at what he did on the ground, it turns out everything which they rate as a good is a bad. It's like somebody saying Obama deserves to be on this particular list because he kept us out of struggles in Syria with no land forces. This is in there, this is in there, and there. And he was responsible for the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, things that other people would rate as big positives. I would rate as enormous negatives under these circumstances, and, and I think the same thing applies to Wilson. If you think of him as a historical figure, extremely important to study, and I have no desire to take his name off of any school whatsoever, but I do think, in effect, that it's not just the left that has grievances with him. I think it's everybody who thinks hard about history and about economic and foreign relations should have a lot of reservations about Wilson on matters wholly unrelated to race. And just a little bit of context there for people who may not be familiar with the history. When you refer to him being incapacitated, Wilson had a series of pretty devastating strokes during his second term. Uh, uh, to this point, Richard, about the actual the naming controversy, you have experience as an administrator in, in higher ed. Walk me through how do you handle this if you were uh, an administrator at Princeton? What's the thought process here and how you deal with these students? Well, I mean there is an irony. Chris Greisgrub is a, is a great guy. He was my former student, one of the best students I've ever had. And, you know, his liberal credentials are completely impeccable um, in terms of this. And, you know, there are two things that you have to do, I think. Uh, and I was a dean for four months and managed to survive these kinds of problems. And, and these are what they are. For the first thing on demands that you regard as outrageous, you have to learn how to say no and to mean it. Uh, so that whenever the demands start coming forward against you, they realize that they're going to be up against opposition. When you announce that the only thing we have to do is to figure out how to become more inclusive, that means that everybody who's against you is going to have a field day because there's no, there's going to be no pushback coming against them. And you have to say, look, what you have to do is you're the president of Princeton or of Yale or of NYU or something. We have had a terrific record on this thing by your metrics. Let me tell you some of the numbers. And then you could start to give numbers about the amount of scholarships, special programs, assistance, and so forth that you've given in the affirmative action dimension. None of this ever gets out. What we're told is that something has been given, but it's never enough. Uh, the definition of marginalized, you have to fight. Uh, if the definition is only that there are fewer minority students than there are non-minority students, you'll always be marginalized in a country in which it turns out that the majority of the people turn out to be white in one form or another or Asian or other groups that are regarded to some extent as though they are privileged. And you can't let that part of the dialogue uh, start to take over. And so you have to come to this from a big point of saying, look, we are not the modern incarnation of Jim Crow. We've done everything we can. We're liberal. And now you're treating us in this particular fashion. You're not being fair to history. You're not being fair to us. And I think they ought to say that. I'm quite happy to say it for them. And I think that actually once you cut push back, what happens is now the guys on the other side realize that there's something that can be lost by saying silly things. They tend to make their demands more moderate. Um, okay, that's the first thing. The second thing you have to do is not only you have to have the stick, you got to know how to do the carrot. And this is really very complicated in these institutions because what happens is the sort of the inadvertent slight um, that takes place takes place to everybody. And it turns out that it's not just minority students who are blown off in this, that, and the other kind of occasion. Everybody always gets some degree of social rejection. And people have to put that in perspective. But if you're an administrator, what you have to understand is you cannot simply sit there aloof in your castle and rule from above. You have to mix it up. Roll up your sleeves. Go down to the student cafeteria. Meet and talk to students in some sort of a way. 
just kind of get yourself some feel of what's going on from the ground and be accessible. The very high level of reluctance on the part of students, typically, to want to make an appointment to see the president of Princeton University. I mean, you know, or even to see a faculty member. And so when I was an interim dean, I would always sort of sit down in the student lounge and talk to people for a half an hour, a couple of days a week. And what happened is somebody would accidentally on purpose run into me, tell me something. And I said, this is important. And I try to figure out what to do about it. So you try to get information from the ground up instead of going through channel and let people have a chance to talk to you. And so long as you're open in that way, it changes the nature of the dialogue in which people don't feel as though they have to be confrontational because they're in public. And then the other thing you do is if you find out that there's something you can do that will help people, um, regardless of who they are, you just do it. Uh, the worst thing you can do as an administrator is to go for the quid pro quo. I'm going to give you this extra thing. Now, you've got to give me something. All you want as an administrator when you're running a place is if something bad goes on, you want to be able to have 30 minutes to explain what happened, why you think about it in this way, and what ought to be done. And so the only way you can get that is for people to believe that you're in good faith. So the first thing you have to say on affirmative action um, is, look, I am not the Supreme Court. I don't have any desire to end these programs, but you have to understand that we have to be able to tinker with them at the margins to make it better in any one of a dozen different ways. And you have to work with me on that. But I can assure you this is not a covert program to sink everything. And what makes it wrong is there are all sorts of colorblind people out there. Colorblindness does not work in private institutions. And they're out to say you've got to end the thing. And, you know, that's Chief Justice Roberts. That turns out to be Justice Scalia. Uh, colorblindness is fine if you're enforcing the criminal law. When you're on a campus in which everybody is race sensitive up to the nines, uh, for you to simply say it doesn't matter is crazy. What makes it so difficult is in the current dialogue, anybody who has a racial identity claim they want to make is free to put it in just those terms. Anybody who refers to racial identity or differences on the other side is now guilty of marginalization, stigmatization, and so forth. You can't run a dialogue where things go on that terms, and you have to be very explicit about the way in which you start to state it. But the key thing to understand about affirmative action or any program of students is there's no such thing as an affirmative action program that admits students. These are relationships that last for four years, and you as the president have to make sure that you and everybody else who's involved in these things tends to relationship work throughout the entire term instead of saying, gee, we've done our job, we've given the admissions, we've given the scholarships, it's all over. And I think that there's a real tendency on the part of many administrators uh, to kind of stay back from this sort of messy point-by-point uh, interaction with students, you have to really be comfortable, have to be a Democrat in the small d, willing to talk to just about anybody. And I mean anybody. You walk down the corridor and you see the janitor there. You're the president of the university. What's the first thing you think? How do you say hello? You just you can't just walk by people and ignore them. A wave, a nod, anything. So as to recognize that you see another human being goes an enormous way to establish the goodwill and it's the goodwill that you need in order to get yourself through the really hard times on some of these questions about diversity, affirmative action or whatever wish you wish to call it. These are difficult sorts of questions and I think right now uh, the responses that we have seen have been too soft on the one hand and too aloof on the other and the combination I think is quite deadly. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. 
And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.